powered by Adept Group. This is the Unpacking Excellence Podcast with Daniel Beardsworth. Daniel Beardsworth. Bringing together top packaging professionals to share insight and knowledge on all things packaging. Now, introducing your host, Daniel Beardsworth. Hi, and welcome to Adept Packaging's Unpacking Excellence Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Karen Hagerman, uh, a senior manager with the Sustainable Packaging Coalition. And we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, EPR, uh, Extended Producer Responsibility, and kind of what that means as it's starting to gain popularity here in, in the U.S. Uh, how are you doing today, Karen? I'm doing great, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Thank you for, for joining me. I want to start with just talking a little bit about uh, sort of what EPR is and kind of what brands need to know. This isn't it necessarily a new idea? It's been around for a few decades in Europe and, and I think you know, Canada and, and some other places, but it is a little newer to the U.S. So can you just kind of uh, give us a, a brief description of, of what brands need to know about how EPR is going to affect their business? Yeah, absolutely. So um, EPR, like you said, extended producer responsibility, what it is is a policy approach that takes responsibility for the end of life of products and assigns it to producers. And often those are the brands, the, the ones make it, making the product, whatever it is. And in the case of EPR for packaging, that's the packaging for the products. And so, like you said, EPR is new in the sense that we are seeing the first bills pass in the US and it's been a very hot topic this year. But there have actually been a lot of people working in this space to get to this point. Um, and additionally, there, there are also many states that have had EPR for other products like carpet, paint, electronics. And so there's a lot of experience there as well. But in terms of applying it to packaging um, and really integrating it into the existing recycling infrastructure that we have, that is definitely a new challenge here in the U.S. Um, but as you said, there is experience in Europe and there's experience in Canada, as well as other parts of the world in terms of EPR for packaging. But I think when it comes to your question about what brands need to know, we talk about EPR as one concept, but in reality, it, it's many different things in practice. The way we implement it here is not necessarily going to look like what it, it does in other parts of the world. Um, and so I think one of the, the biggest things is to understand what the legislation is actually saying in the different states that have passed EPR, and then in the states that haven't passed it yet, understanding how brands can be involved as a stakeholder, whether that's in the development of legislation or in the rulemaking process. And then additionally, when it comes to, I think, sustainability of packaging, really understanding um, the considerations of how fees will be connected to a packaging design and how eco-modulation, how that concept plays into a brand's um, responsibilities and the what they'll be paying into the program as well. You know, you mentioned that we're going to implement it a little differently here, you know, likely in the U.S. compared to how other countries have done it. But are there any lessons that brands in the U.S. can learn from, um, you know, companies in, in Europe or, or other parts of the world that have been doing this for a while? Absolutely. So many brands that uh, operate in the U.S., a lot of them actually have divisions that do, you know, global business in Europe and comply with regulations. So there's likely a lot of internal knowledge in that sense. Um, but the, the interesting thing is to look at how the regulations in Europe have evolved over time. Uh, some of them started out in terms of having a weight-based approach. So fees were basically just straight um, flat fees based on weight. And then they transitioned to a more nuanced consideration of uh, the materials and formats that factor into what a producer pays into the program. And so looking at how it's evolved and potentially how, um, how it will best be 
implemented in the in the U.S. is important. But again, it kind of goes back to being aware of the different regulations and considerations within a region because. Uh, again, it'll be it'll be very different. And so I think that the biggest thing to, to understand is how it's different and why it's different and how brands have to comply with the different regulations in different states. That makes sense. Um, you know, kind of speaking of states, uh, earlier this summer, Maine became the first state and then uh, Oregon followed, I think, earlier in August. Um, do you think that's something that we're going to see, you know, a lot of states jump on board in, in the short term, or do you think it'll be more of a wait and see approach and sort of, you know, let the states that adopted early kind of test it out and smooth out the wrinkles before it, it spreads further here in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. I um, am not sure that we'll see any further activity this year because of how the legislation, uh, the legislative sessions are structured and how many of them have concluded for 2021, but we saw 10 states introduced some sort of EPR for packaging legislation this year, and some of those states had multiple bills. There was also activity at the federal level with the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. So I think many would agree that the 2022 legislative session is sure to bring more activity in this space. And most likely all of those states that have introduced bills this year will reintroduce them next year. Um, and then additionally, there's some other states that have been considering or working on legislation that might join in as well. So it'll be interesting to see um, what in what direction those bills go, whether they're reintroduced as is, as they were for this session, or if they're taking different components from the bills that have passed. The, the different laws that passed in Oregon and Maine have pretty significantly different structures in some sense. And so it'll be interesting to see whether um, these, the states that follow suit, whether they trend towards one direction or the other, or if they start to emerge with unique programs that fit the needs of the individual states. But I think that I think that states won't wait and see until it's implemented. I think we'll see a lot more activity and people pushing towards um, trying to get these legislation, this, these bills passed in the short term. Um, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about sort of the different approaches that, that states have. Um, but you know, just based on kind of knowing all of that, how do you think uh, the EPR regulations are going to change producers' approach to the their packaging? So I think I think a lot of producers, especially the ones that we work with at, at the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, they're already working towards more sustainable packaging. Um, they're looking for ways to incorporate post-consumer recycled content, uh, reduce the carbon footprint of their processes, improve recyclability, all these different things, and so. It might, not change, it might not change their approach too much, but it will, um, one thing it'll do is require companies to keep detailed data on their packaging if they're not doing that already. But perhaps like other brands that have been slower to make these changes will be further incentivized to do it when it becomes a law. And I mentioned eco-modulation earlier, and that's really the, um, the concept of, of the fee structure that discourages packaging materials um, that are less, or or packaging design that is less environmentally friendly and it rewards better or more environmentally friendly, more sustainable materials and packaging formats. And so that being written into the regulation um, may connect these, you know, provide more specific guidelines and potentially connect the sustainable packaging formats to their bottom line in a more tangible way. Um, and then having the target set in legislation also encourages um, you know, faster, potentially faster timelines, faster compliance, 
uh, to transition to these more sustainable formats. Yeah, that was kind of a very similar um, thought to what I'm hearing from the sustainability experts on our team, kind of that brands that have really focused on and, and have started their you know, journey towards more sustainable packaging are really not going to be impacted as much as maybe people who, who haven't been uh, incentivized to start as much yet. Uh, you know, kind of the consumer preferences were the, the carrot, if you will, that led some, some brands on the road. And now this is going to kind of be the stick to mm -hmm. um, get, get everybody who hasn't gotten moving in it kind of into shape. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the interesting thing that is that we, a lot of brands are looking at, you know, the most sustainable um, package that they can and how to transition to it. But the sustainable end of life of a material is really dependent on the market in which it's introduced, which is why there's a lot of difference in these EPR regulations, especially when it comes to eco-modulation, because depending on what infrastructure or processing capacity or end markets exist, then that may they may change how uh, how different states value the ecomodulation um, incentives. Uh, and so that's, I think, an interesting factor to include too, is to being aware of the differences between the legislations and seeing how that's going to impact packaging requirements in different ways. Um, speaking of those kind of differences in, in recycling and um, you know, compostable packaging and all that kind of the, the infrastructure differences from region to region, do you think that EPR is really going to be an effective catalyst for change, or do you think um, you know it's going to help incrementally, but we're still going to be waiting for sort of the infrastructure catch, to catch up to where we need to be? Yeah, that's a, a great question, and I think you know the the real answer is is it depends, or it remains to be seen. A lot of people talk about the need for a uniquely American version of EPR that addresses those challenges that we're facing within our um, recycling infrastructure and current system. And you can also see how that plays out by looking at the differences in the EPR bills that have been proposed and also in the laws that are, have been passed. They're designed to take into account not only the infrastructure in the state, the market, the processing capacity, also the government structure. Um, but I think when it comes to, to changing the infrastructure, the, the existence of EPR doesn't necessarily equate to improved recycling rates or infrastructure. Uh, on one of the end of the spectrum, it could just change who's paying for the existing system. Um, but many of the, so we've seen a lot of um, industry positions and companies coming out in support of EPR, but a lot of them specify that they, um, the need for a policy that is uniquely suited to address the realities of the current system while pushing for improvements to infrastructure and expansion and then also setting aggressive but achievable targets. Um, and so if those are in fact achieved, then you know, it, it would be an improvement, um, but this also takes into account needs assessments uh, that are built into a lot of the legislation to understand where the money would best be, sent, be spent. Um, but I think overall, if you step back, even the most effectively planned policy won't necessarily solve every problem. Uh, and the, the phrase that I hear a lot when it comes to sustainability and sustainable solutions is that it's not a silver bullet, you know, that nothing's a silver bullet, whether that's technology or material or process. And I think that applies to EPR as well. It's not a silver bullet, it's not a panacea, but it may help address shortcomings, particularly when it comes to funding gaps. Um, but I think really it's, it's part of a larger system and there's more work that needs to be done to address the limitations of that system across um, so many different aspects. And so policy is just one component of that. Yeah, I think that's a, a thing that we have a lot in our, our conversations with our team here is that 
um, you know, sometimes people tend to look at new developments and sort of sustainability as a, you know, an or, like if we do this instead of what we're doing, and really we mm -hmm. start, should start looking at them as ands. I mean, we're, we're doing this and then we're going to add this and we're going to add this. And it's just going to be that kind of incremental approach until we get where we need to be. Absolutely. And I think taking that, you know, whole systems perspective, making sure that we're doing all of them, all of the things that need to be done concurrently and uh, that that's going to be critical to really ensure that we change the system for better. Well, um, Karen, is there anything that we haven't touched on uh, about uh, EPR that, that you think is important, sort of anything that we've, we've overlooked or, or that you think um, we should talk about, you know, kind of more thoroughly to give people a picture of how this is going to affect their packaging? I think what's really important, especially for producers of packaging to know is, is just to understand what's going on, understand the landscape and understand how they can be involved because uh, I think that we could all agree that the most effective solution is going to be the one that takes into account the most perspectives and really looks at things that are data-based, um, that are backed by uh, research. And so ensuring that the right people are at the table to make these decisions is really important. And so members throughout the packaging value chain that uh, have a stake in this, it's important for them to, to be informed, to understand what is going on, what the differences are, and what those differences would mean in practice so that they can better take part in the discussions that we'll be um, developing and, and, and creating these programs to make sure that they're the most effective that they can be. I couldn't agree more. Um, Karen, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk to us today. I think this will be really good for you know, folks that aren't as familiar with what EPR is and have just maybe heard about it to, to kind of help them. Um, and if you're listening and this is just sort of a primer for you, uh, the Sustainable Packaging Coalition has a really thorough guide to EPR um, on their website. I don't know if, if you had a hand in putting that, that together, but it's helped me a lot to kind of wrap my head around um, what all this means. Um, you know, so I direct people there to sustainablepackaging.org and, and look for the guide to EPR there. Yes, absolutely. And thanks for having me. And, and I agree, if, if there are any questions on that resource on um, the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, I'd be more than happy to answer them. But really, the purpose of that resource is, is just, like I said, to help inform stakeholders so that they can better take part in these discussions. And so um, we're glad to hear that it's, it's useful. Okay. Well, um, thanks again, Karen, and, and have a great day. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to Unpacking Excellence with Daniel Beardsworth. Daniel Beardsworth. For more resources on all things packaging, head to our website, adeptpackaging.com. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks again for listening.